This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. I'm really happy tonight to introduce you to, well, it could be any time of day. It is a podcast, but this is a recommendation from a former guest, Briner Agassi. He introduced me to Silas Height. Now, this is really cool because it's taken me a little bit further on the musical path. Um, we've had writers, and etc. I think we definitely need some musicians. So today we're hitting it out of the park. This is not only a musician. This is a composer. He's not only a composer. He's an Emmy-winning composer. So top flight, top of the line. How are you doing today, Silas? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the uh, great intro. Well, thanks for being here, man. It's sure. really a total honor. Now, you got started, let me see, back in the day you worked with um, your uncle in his studio? Yeah, I started uh, professionally working as a composer about 15 years ago in my uncle Mark Mothersbaugh's studio. You may know him from Devo. Um, they were you know, pretty big at the end of the 70s and early 80s. And uh, if you're a fan, in your mind, they're still gigantic. And that's fair. They still tour like crazy. And uh, Mark scores a ton of movies and TV shows and things like that. And my other uncle, Bob, actually is also in the band and does the same thing. And I worked with them fresh out of college uh, for about seven years. Uh, started as an intern and worked my way up into full-time composer there, um, scoring TV shows and uh, films and video games and commercials uh, all the time. And then about seven years ago, I left there to become a freelance composer and do the same thing, but just for myself. And that's what I'm doing now. That's really cool. Now, from what I understand, one of your first um, campaigns was an Apple ad? Uh, not really one of my first, but one of my biggest when I worked at my uncle's studio. Yes, uh, it was a big commercial campaign. The Mac versus PC is what they were called. And you might remember him, Just, Justin Long was the sure. famous actor in it. And um, there's a comedian who played his counterpart who was the PC. I, I can't remember his name. Off. John Hodgman. Oh, yeah, I think so. And those commercials, there was like... 80 different commercials or something, which is pretty wild. And they played not only on television around the world, but also in every Apple store for like five years, they had those ads running. And so I'm sure the Apple employees hated that music by the, <laughs> by the end of that five years. But, but uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. That got a lot of attention for sure. And my music was in those ads. Well, those are huge. I mean, they, you were um, almost downplaying it. Not only did they play for multiple years, but they had a cult following on YouTube. So those were ads that were so good that people were playing them on their own and sharing them all over the place and yeah. and grabbing them as soon as they came out. And you can still find all of them on YouTube. It was funny. I, I did watch a how to play this commercial song one time, like a video on YouTube, and it was someone uh, <laughs> teaching you how to play what I wrote. And of course, they were wrong, but... <laughs> But it was, oh, wow. I still appreciated the effort. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Did you comment on it? No, no, I'm uh, stay in the shadows. I don't want to get sucked into something like that. But but I thought it was pretty cool. And I also um, I found something else around. Oh, yeah. So I did. Uh, I scored a couple of years of Shaggy and Scooby-Doo Get a Clue, which was one of the iterations of Shaggy and Scooby-Doo cartoon. And uh, myself and some other composers at the, my uncle's studio scored that and uh, I happened to write the theme song I performed it and sang it and if you go on YouTube there's different um, versions of people performing it around the world like 
the Serbian version and the, you know, oh, I, don't, wow. I don't know, pick a country. And so it's someone trying to kind of sound like me singing it, but in, a, <laughs> in another language. And it's funny. They, um, the guy that created that show wanted it to be very punky, like pop punk, kind of like Green Day or something like that. So basically it's, I'm singing with a very bratty kind of annoying voice. So it's all these people around the world trying to, you know, <laughs> copy this annoying voice in their language. It's pretty great. That's so cool. So you you also sing now. Do you do you gig on the side playing bands things like that or? I have for years. I about two years ago I stopped. Um, I just it's just been too. I've been fortunate enough to have so much scoring work that it's just exhausting to then try and do the live thing on top of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always felt like it was important to keep that up, and you know I'll probably return to it at some point. But uh, it's just you know, just too much scoring stuff to do. And, you know, there's only so much, so many hours in a day, right? Now, um, that was something I actually talked to Briner about. How, how does some of that work? Because I, I personally think that scoring is a different kind of discipline than creating a straight out composition of your own. Yeah, because very different. Aren't you at service to the medium or the message Right. That the director is trying to get across. Right. Yeah. It's, it's all about helping them tell their story rather than, uh, you know, just writing something that you think sounds cool or, you know, servicing some sort of idea that you want to put forward. Uh, Like if you write a song, you know, you've got some sort of creative inspiration and whatever, but scoring something is very different. You are taking their um, ideas, you know, what you're seeing on screen and melding that with whatever suggestions they have for the music and also trying to make it, you know, your own, uh, certainly, and creative mm-hmm. and cool. But you have to hit all these kind of ticks, these checks in these boxes and make sure that it accomplishes all the things it needs to, like, you know, um, hits certain moments, reflects the correct mood, uh, has the pacing that it needs to so that it feels right against the way it was edited all these things. So the more I, the more I score and the longer I, I'm around in this business, I kind of feel the more I feel like it's creative problem solving. I have to achieve all these things that are needed to best service the, the picture and the project. Um, yeah. But I enjoy that challenge. You know, it's interesting. Would you call it then um, more of a craft than an art or is it still in there? Definitely both. Um, but you have luxuries when you're writing songs for yourself or creating music for yourself when there's no, when no one's, you know, paying you to do it a certain way or it's not involved with something else. You know, I, you can make it however you want. You can cut corners when you want to or not. You know, um, you can, your timetable is up to you. That's the other thing when you're working on a film or a TV show or whatever, you know, your timetable may be a fraction of what you would like, but you still have to get it done. So that's another, part of the skill set. So there's a lot of craft involved. And I think the further you get along in the game, quote unquote, the more craft is involved where you realize you can kind of do whatever is needed once you have the right skills and you're, you're sort of just building this thing and putting it together. I think it becomes a little less mystical, less like art, even though, you know, you're still creating something beautiful and awesome, hopefully. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely you are. I'm um, like, what kind of, um, guidance do you get or can you give me an example of you know how, maybe sure. one of your projects and how you were approached and, and what the process was well sure um 
Well, for example, let's say Chef's Table. It was a that's a show that's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original series, and it follows the lives of uh, chefs uh, that work around you know different places around the world, and they you know tend to pick interesting people who have interesting stories and very creative processes and things like that. Um, but from the music side. Um, you know, I was approached because I had worked with one of the directors, Brian McGinn, before that, and um, we'd had some great experiences working together. And for this, they knew that they were going to license some pre-existing classical music pieces. So, you know, famous pieces that are out there in the world, you can pay to use them on your show, you know. Um, and they knew they wanted to do that because they tried it against their picture and they thought, oh, this is nice. It ends a, a lens, you know a bit of class or something like that. It works well with the the footage, which was very beautifully shot. Uh, and so for, they approached me and wanted, you know, original music that helped tell their story that would be kind of woven in in between these pieces. And so we talked about, well, these are classical pieces, you know, there's it's an orchestra and we can't afford an orchestra, but I can hire, you know, X amount of string players and things like that. So the score, I knew it was going to be sort of classical, you know what I mean? And, um, but also modern and I would have the luxury of hiring some real string players. And so, um, what happens in most any project, they have pieces of music in there called temp music, meaning they'll send me a rough cut of the film or TV show. Um, meaning it's not done yet, but it's getting close. You know, the story's almost there. It's almost done. And they have music that they like that they put in there for whatever reason. So they might put in something that let's just say, for example, this wouldn't be chef's table, but let's say like the Rolling Stones, they put in a Rolling Stones song. They would say, we love this song because the energy is correct. Uh, we like the the pacing of it. It really works well. And um, the attitude is great. But of course, we can't afford to license this song. Can you write something that has a similar attitude and energy? And we like the instruments. But of course, you know, you can't sound too close to the Rolling Stones or whoever because you get sued. But it's more to just to illustrate this is what we found works well against picture. And that sort of when they send you temp music, it's helpful because then I don't have to try every, you know, a million different things to figure out which work, what works. They already sort of have an idea of a general area of music that works. So that's kind of the process. And then you, I write something, send it to them. You know, they, they will get back to me and say, you know, oh, we love it, but make sure, you know, we're going to, we want it to stop on uh, the guy opening the door or it sounds great, but you know, uh, it's too busy. Can you simplify it? Things like that. And you go back and forth until it's perfect. Well, so you're in essence trying to capture a feeling or a vibe. Yep. Okay. So it could be something completely different, but it's just a tone. And I'm guessing in a way that maybe you wouldn't want that stone song anyway, because it might distract from the picture itself. Yeah. A lot of times uh, I think that's the case where you don't want a song that has all these um, cultural you know, maybe cultural baggage, you could say, whether that's positive or negative with it, you know, a song like, let's say, Beast of Burden, everyone has their own experiences with that, that they bring to the table. Now, sometimes you do want that, or, you know, or my clients want that. Um, and so they do license songs that are either cool at the moment, or something that everybody has some sort of nostalgia for. Um, and that's also a difficult thing with temping in music, because sometimes, 
I find this more often with people that are perhaps not as far along in their career. They will temp in music that they really love, you know, that's very special to them, like a band that they love that's, you know, played an integral part in their, you know, in their growing up or whatever. And then, but they can't afford it. And so they want me to replace it and write music that affects them in the same way, but, you know, (laughs) and also tell their story, but it's like, well, you know, you have a very special relationship with this piece of music. I'm probably never going to be able to replace that, you know? So it can be a, a touchy thing to negotiate. How do you work through that? I mean, mm. are there times you just have to walk away? Oh, no, I don't walk away. I don't give up. No. Um, uh, I think that would be like, no, no, I couldn't do that. Um, you know, you just have a conversation with them and say, hey, you know, I, I know you love this song. Why do you love it? And then, you know, hopefully nicely lead them to the fact that they, you know, grew up with it or something like that and be like, I, I can't quite match that, uh, you know, what it means to you. However, I do know how to serve this scene and, and tell the story that's happening on screen here, um, you know, really well. And of course, I mean, people are always welcome to then license the song if they can afford it. And that happens sometimes where I'll be approached and they'll, they'll say, hey, we have all these songs in here. We would like you to write something for these scenes. Uh, we like the music that's in there, but of course, it's expensive to license it. So, you do what you can and replace what you can. And if we're still in love with certain songs, maybe we'll just go ahead and pay, you know, pay for them. But if you replace enough of them, then we can afford to buy some of them. And that's fine too. I don't mind that. That's just means that I'm giving them options and they're paying me to do that. And so that's totally cool. Do you um, tag on to some pre-existing music sometimes like kind of filling in spaces or something like that? You mean like in between or something? Or- yeah. 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 Uh, sometimes there'll be, you know, a song that plays and then there's a gap and then, uh, you know, a different song or whatever. And yeah, you have to fill in in between. And so in those cases, it's about finding the right tone that fits and instrumentation and things like that. And yeah. Now I've heard you say in other interviews a lot that you're very much a visual person. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you also paint too, correct? I paint and draw. I went to um, I studied art as well as music and business when I was in college and love visual arts and have done a lot of art shows over the years. Um, but in the last couple of years, as I mentioned, kind of when I stopped playing in live bands, um, I just have sort of run out of time for visual art. And I've just been too, too darn busy scoring things, which is great. And I love it. So that's fine. But yeah, unfortunately, my uh, visual art has sort of fallen by the wayside lately. Right. But that love of visual art and ability in it, does that not help you to I think so. visualize the sound, so to speak, which sounds yes. contrary, but. No, I, I think it's very, uh, I definitely see sound when I'm working. I, you know, if I close my eyes, I can see the music and I don't mean like sheet music, you know, it's more like, I mean, to sort of simplify like shapes and colors and emotion and things like that. But yeah, you, you, you do see it. And in some respects, when it looks right, that's when you know it's done. So it is, it's this weird sort of visual art of something that you can't actually see. But <laughs> there is that, there is a visual art component to it. When you study art and music, you definitely find um, parallels all over the place. That's really cool. And I think it makes you um, <clears throat> well, a triple threat, especially with a business degree. <laughs> That's just trying to, uh, you know, not go bankrupt and be able to uh, <laughs> not have to drive Uber while I'm 
composing and things like that. Uh, you know, all joking aside, really, uh, when I was younger, I saw a lot of musicians and artists, both are extremely talented, but not able to really make a full-time living or, you know, it was, or it was a real struggle and things like that. And I wouldn't say that I'm a business guru in any sense of the word, but I knew that I wanted to be my own boss at some point. And I just thought that perhaps if I had a little bit of business training, that would help me, you know, deal with being my own boss and, and hopefully make it easier to sustain a career, uh, things like that and be able to do it comfortably. And I have to say, um, it has helped, you know, and especially when I became a freelance composer, having a little bit of background in <clears throat> promotion, especially, and also, uh, you know, being able to read through contracts and not be flustered or overwhelmed, um, being, being able to talk with my clients about um, budgets and things like that and not feeling weird about it. I, I've noticed that that's something that a lot of creative people have a problem with is discussing numbers when it comes to your art or your music. You know, they get flustered and like, oh, I don't know, you know, and get weirded out about it. And that's, I understand that. But I think having a little bit of background in business helped to sort of just, you know, get over that. Yeah, I was going to ask you that if it actually helped you overcome that that problem that some artists have of not being able to express their actual value in dollars. Like, yeah. No, I'm going to charge you X, you know, dollars an hour for this project, or I'm going to deliver, you know, it's a deliverable at this price and I'm selling you it's an object or it's a service. Yeah. Yes. I do think it helped. Um, at this point, I also have the luxury of dealing with uh, clients that are, you know, fairly, I don't know how you would say this, but you know, fair, the, the, <clears throat> the clients have made it already, you know, they, they know what they're doing and they're sort of up there in the business. And so they're used to dealing with people on a business level. Um, you know, lots of different, so here's an example. If you're dealing with a, a film producer, they're, they're contracting with all sorts of different people and negotiating all kinds of budgets and stuff. It's not just you. So they're, you know, they're definitely used to talking numbers and going back and forth and things like that. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not, you're not putting them out by having a conversation about it, you know? Yeah. They're, they expect to pay. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of artists and musicians, you're not dealing with that very often. So it feels a bit uncomfortable or it can so for um, the young musicians in the audience, I mean, you, you're kind of um, specialized, but yet wide and raging at the same time. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really unique spot. I'm, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, blue ocean theory. No. Um, it's a matter of rather than trying to tackle the same path that everybody else is doing, you find some, you find something uniquely your own and, nobody else can compete with you because it's your own thing. Oh. So instead of, you know, a bunch of shock sharks in the water, you know, eating at each other and drawing blood, you're over in the blue ocean, just kind of, you know, cruising along. Well, I'm not I, saying you're working, not working or anything, but yeah, no, I think less, less competition. I don't know that I've found anything that's that startlingly unique. That's, um, you know, been able to get rid of competition or anything, but, um, I've been able to hustle enough and get enough uh, clients to give me a shot and then provided a great service so that they keep coming back. And I think that's the big, the big secret is most of my business is repeat customers and then new customers tend to become repeat. 
um, just by, you know, because I write good music for them. I'm dependable. I'm not flaky. I don't have a problem with revisions. I don't get a bad attitude about having to change my music because they want me to, um, things like that. And so they keep coming back. And I think that's the secret right there for composers anyway. (laughs) Well, in, in your line of work, aren't you, isn't it the ultimate humility to be successful? Because you are the consummate team player. You're working with a director, with other people all the time. So you sort of have to have an attitude to let your ego kind of step back a bit. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, composing for, you know, film, television, whatever it is, for some other media. But, like, it seems very obvious that, yeah, that's a team sport. You're collaborating from the get-go. You you. You can't. You don't exist without those projects, and those projects are bringing you on to help tell their story. Seems very obvious. However, one thing that you do find a lot in this uh, business is a lot of composers who don't really kind of understand that, or they're very uh, they're very protective of their music or precious about it, and so they get upset when they're asked for changes. And I know this because I've not only witnessed it, witnessed composers being like that, but also. I've had directors and producers tell me that like that they're like, well, we asked for these changes and the composer was, you know, upset or obviously very defensive about it. And, you know, I mean, when you create something like music, that's very personal and you feel like it's a piece of you. It it is a bummer sometimes to be told, Hey, you need to really tear that down. It's not working, you know? And, and, um, but that's, that's part of what it is. It really is a collaboration. You have to be ready for that. And going back to the earlier question, that's kind of the craft side, right? It is. And also just being professional, I mean, and realizing it's a business. It's different if you're, you know, if someone approaches you and they're just like, I love your music and what you do. I just want your opinion on this, whatever you think works. But nobody, that doesn't happen unless you're like Tom York or something, you know, unless you're like a very famous rock star or something like that, where you can do whatever you want and people are just going to lap it up. Uh, it's, I think that's pretty rare. Um, but here's my advice to composers, you know, is that have your own music projects where nobody else calls the shots and you just put out your own thing and you, you work on your own music because that's your safe haven to do whatever you want and experiment and nobody tells you how it needs to be. So for example, I just put out this record sounds for a dinner party. I checked and it out. It's very cool. Thank you. Um, it's all instrumental. Um, I, uh, worked with, you know, amazing string players here and woodwind players. And I played uh, quite a few different instruments on it, mandolin and accordion, and I whistled and all kinds of stuff. And, um, nobody told me what to do for that record. It was just because I wanted to put out something and write this music, you know, so I didn't have anyone calling the shots. And I feel like having, um, an outlet where you're in charge completely, really helps you then, you know, take feedback and um, be a little bit more removed for them from the music that you write for others and not in a bad way, but just enough so that you can be a more of a team player. Sure. And also it might give you an outlet when you said it feels bad that they tear something down. If you happen to really love it, yeah, you can tuck that on the pocket on the side for your own project, right? You named it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Uh, yeah. I always tell composers, if you write something and you think it's amazing and it doesn't quite fit the project, you know, it's easy to write a great thing and get carried away with, Oh, this is really cool more than 
you know, what the project needs. And then if you can step back and be honest with yourself and go, well, this is a cool piece of music, but it doesn't really fit what they asked me to do. You just hit pocket it and you'll find a place for it. You know, you'd be happy that you didn't dumb it down or change it in ways you didn't want to for another project, you know? Now, speaking of that, one thing I was blown away by is your speed. Mm. Um, The amount of time it takes you to actually compose something do you want to share that with us? <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, I, you know, I've been, um, it's been pointed out that I work quickly and I think I do. I think it's from doing so many commercials because scoring commercials, the, uh, speed at which you have to turn things around is breakneck would be the nice way to put it. You know, I mean, sometimes it's within an hour or, you know, uh, I'll have to write 10 tracks by the next day, things like that. Then, um, <clears throat> If you've only scored film or something like that, it, that seems insane. But uh, I, I think it's kind of like the the bigger the clients, the the less time you have, you know. And so mm-hmm. anyway, I've just been doing it for a long time at that sort of level where that was the demand. And so now I'm used to it. And so that rate of writing things for commercials where you have to write so quickly has bled over into the other areas of, you know, when I'm working on TV or video games or or anything. It's just, um, so now I can work quickly, which is nice because it allows me to take on more projects. Um, there's nothing bums me out more than having to turn down a project. <laughs> so what would be a, um, a method? Like if I gave you a piece of work, um, how would you compose it in general? Well, let's say it was this podcast. Okay. And mm-hmm. let's say I, that you wanted a, an intro piece of music and then an outro piece of music. Um, then I would say, okay, well, you know, um, tell me a little about your podcast. What are some words that you use to describe it to other people? Um, and maybe you would give me some adjectives, right? Inspirational or, you know, curious or things like that. And so I would then translate those things into music and what I think. I mean, I would also ask you, do you have any other pieces of music that you've come across that you feel kind of capture the vibe of what you're going for? And so, mm-hmm. If you did, you know, I would take that into account. So if you, you know, perhaps you were like the Thomas Newman score for American Beauty, it's um, very thought provoking and inquisitive and I like the instruments in it, then I might listen to that and go, okay, well, he's drawn to, let's say, marimba and mandolin. Maybe I'll try writing something with those instruments and see if that appeals to him. Or you might say, I like the nature of that piece of music, but I don't like the instruments. Um, They're not whatever. It doesn't sound modern enough to me or something like that. So I would basically poke you with questions <laughs> until I got enough information from you that I felt like I could write a piece of music that would meet what you were, uh, what you were hoping to get. Cool. And then the actual process itself, I think uh-huh. you had mentioned one time that you lay down a beat, um, whether or not you even use it because you have a background as a drummer. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, sometimes I will just, put down some drums or something like that just to get the right tempo and the feel and have something to play against. Um, you know, if I know that I want it to groove in a certain way or swing in a certain way, you know, I do the drums and have a drum beat in there that grooves or swings in a certain way, and then maybe play along to it and use that to get the sort of feel. And then uh, a lot of times, yeah, I will just mute it and take that out completely by the time the end product comes around. Um, but sometimes I do use that to get the right feeling because, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I started studying drums. Uh, that was my first instrument. I started when I was 11. I took drum lessons from this old old uh, uh, jazz drummer named Mel Zelnick, and he was 
he was <laughs> awesome. He played with Benny Goodman when he was only like 18, oh, wow. when Mel was only 18 or 19. And then he had a whole career in the jazz world when jazz was uh, king. And uh, yeah, so I studied with him. And so, that, yeah, that's a big part of my background. And then, of course, in, in college, when I studied music, it was as a percussion major. So, you know, drums and percussion are always sort of the backbone of what I do. Well, cool. And um, Devo were very, very far ahead of their time, too. Did yeah. that help kind of bleed in some of the family influence? I think so. I mean, I think listening to them as a kid and watching them and just uh, really absorbing the whole music and art thing bundled together, that always made a lot of sense to me and resonated. Um, and so... Uh, you know, and their music was always super cool, of course. And I liked how catchy and accessible it was as well. Like it's mm -hmm. not, it's not extremely complicated in the sense of, you know, wild chord progressions and like, you know, uh, cerebral kind of solos. Or There's a lot of um, gut feeling rock. Oh, that was a total pun. I didn't mean gut feeling. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's rock guitar in there and there's, if you ever seen them live, they really rock. I mean, it's, hmm. it's, you're, you're dancing and grooving and into it. And, um, it's very accessible, I think to most people. And that always really kind of made an impression to me. Like I, I love music theory. I think it's super interesting, but I think that hmm. you can go too far with it and write music that starts to be maybe more interesting for people that's studied music and then maybe less interesting to the average person. And I always kind of mm. wanted to make that distinction with my music is I, I'm really into simple melodies or just melodies in general and mm -hmm. giving people something to latch on to. Like the Apple commercial we talked about, the, um, you know, the Mac versus PC. That's an incredibly simple piece of music if you listen to it. And it will get stuck in your brain forever, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I think that's pretty cool. It's hard to do. Um, it's easy to, um, it's easy to say that that's easy if you're a musician. Uh, sure. Oh, that's nothing. There's three instruments and whoopee-doo. But uh, you try writing something that sticks in people's head forever, you know? And that's, that's another reason I don't, I try not to berate anything I hear on the radio or people that have popular music that I, you know, maybe I'm not into it, but you know what? It is hard to get people to care about your music. And if you do it, my hat is off to you, you know? That's true. And that really does lead into something that's, um, almost a trap in a way. Oh, the, the better you are at something, the more obvious the result looks. Kind of like, um, remember when the iPod came out? Yes. The click wheel was so intuitive and obvious. Yeah. Remember when everyone said, oh, well, it's obvious you're going to move your finger on the screen with the iPhone. Well, yeah, it was obvious after it was invented. Yeah. It was so intuitive and so brilliant yeah. that it just seemed like, duh, that's how you're going to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of a trap in a way. So like you said, if you put that little simple, catchy melody together, it's like, oh, that's nothing. It's so easy. It, you know, anybody can do it. It's like, yeah, but can you create it? Mm -hmm. If it's so easy, let's see you do it. Yep. I, I, I remember reading a quote when The Who, I believe it was, licensed their first song for television. And it might have been a Cadillac commercial or something like that. And everyone was, and this was probably before all these bands, you know, famous rock bands were licensing mm -hmm. their song and, and I believe Pete Townsend said something along the lines, uh, defending himself, you know, along the lines of fuck you. When some, when somebody offers you that much money for something you created, 
you say no. And it always resonated with me like, you know, I mean, some people are like, you know, I think have the attitude that if you write music for commercials or things like that, you're a sellout. And it's like, you know what? Is anyone asking you to do that? Probably True. not. <laughs> and if they are, and if they are and you turn it down, well, then, okay, that's your choice. I get it. But uh, I don't know. There was a quote by Gene Simmons that I always loved. Yeah. Um, people, you know, went up to him. They're like, you're nothing but a sell. I said, son, I sold out the day I started. Mm, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, he, uh, I think probably if I had to guess what he was talking about is, you know, he, he got in it to make really catchy music that sells. And that was it. Like from the get go, they're like, okay, we've got a shtick. This is our thing. We're going to nail this to the wall, you know, and they did, you know? And so I think in some ways it is easier to sell your music if you view it that way. Um, but the real trick that they were able to pull off and not everybody is, is that you still have to write something artful and good and interesting mm -hmm. that, that draws people in. And that's the hard part. You can say, okay, I'm going to approach this as a business or as a money making venture, but to actually then create something that you think does that, but also is still has some soul in it and still connects with people, you know, that's mm -hmm. hard to do. And that's a great thing about music too. There's a catch there. It does have to be good and have that intangible, who knows what that sucks people in. Now to um, wrap this up for the young musicians out there, what would you recommend? Um, you know, I know this, that's a wide open question. So I would say attitude wise, what okay. would you advise them to do okay. to survive and thrive? I'm going to narrow it down, not just musicians, but let's say musicians who want to be composers, because that's the only thing I'm kind of fit to address at all, if I am fit to address anything. I would say that keep in mind what I said earlier about the reason I get hired multiple times. It's There's several reasons. One, it's because I do good work. So I've you know, you have to be able to deliver quality music that does its job. Two, you have to be easy and fun and enthusiastic to work with. You can't be brooding. You can't be incredibly awkward, even if you just spend all the time in your studio. You know, you have to have some right. social skills. And three, you have to be dependable. It's not okay to to say, oh, I told you I'd have it turned in today, but, uh, you know, my dog ate my homework and it's going to be tomorrow. That doesn't fly in the real world. So, you have to be good at what you do, fun to work with, and dependable. Wow, great advice. And you know what? You can use that in just about anything, yep. not just composing. <laughs> That's saying uh, be professional. Yep. <laughs> well, hey, now, where can people find you? SilasHeight.com is my website, and that has probably, you know, you can uh, find anything from there. Um, you can find me on Spotify by looking up Silas Height. You can find my latest records. I have a million different bands. Um, so if you go to my website, you know, there's an albums tab and you can click around there and find different projects that I've either, they're either my bands or I've recorded those albums or played on them or written the songs, you know, different things like that. Um, you can also, I'm very active on Twitter under Satin Cowboy. You can always find me there. Very cool. And by the way, do check it out because the work there's amazing you've got um, thank you commercials there demos there your demo reel is fantastic i mean that that really helps show people what you're doing thank you if you're in uh, cleveland by chance i've got a song in the rock and roll hall of fame right now and a music video that's up until uh september that uh, they gave us an exhibit uh, myself and my uh a partner that i work with john hershend 
we made a music wow. video, wrote a song. It's all about Cleveland and Akron, and it's up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right now. Wow. That had to be an amazing honor. It was a blast, especially we got to play it live uh, a couple months ago. And uh, my wife played bass and sang, and my cousin Al played horns, and uh, I played guitar and sang. It was a, it was a total honor. <laughs> that is so cool. How do you top that? Right. I don't know. We'll see what next year, you know, 2019 has in store. <laughs> we may have to check back with you. Yeah, please do. Thank you for the interview. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Hey, it's Sarge. And Frenzy. From the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, If you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode. Featuring uh, people like actors, comedians, uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts. Basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio. And you can check us out on all our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. All the things. It's all at Stars Approved. Yep. Check it out, and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.